Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Will Clark, Senior Communications Studies major and videographer at Gustavus, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me, your host, Greg Castor. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. I think we are living through an extremely challenging time, observed my colleague Michelle Rosinko of the Theater and Dance Department to the campus newspaper in December 2019. As artists, I believe it is our responsibility not only to hold up a mirror to the world we are experiencing, it is also our responsibility to paint, to compose, to choreograph works of arts that present or provide a representation of the world as it can be, the world we aspire to live in. Michelle's observation resonates even more now than it did almost a year ago, and did, along with her research in positive psychology and resilience, which the current pandemic is sorely testing, make me especially eager to speak with her at this moment of crisis for global public health, U.S. democracy, and the arts themselves. Michelle joined the Gustavus faculty in 1988 and quickly made her mark as not only a talented professor and choreographer, but also a highly regarded and effective campus leader, including for many years as chair of her department. A graduate of St. Olaf College, Michelle earned her MFA from Arizona State University. In addition to teaching and commenting about dance, she choreographs it with students and professional dancers, including herself, and dances to others' choreography. She founded and directs the two student dance ensembles at Gustavus, the Matching Tights Dance Company and Apprentice Dance Company, and she has traveled and taught in Sweden, Ireland, Israel, and China. Among her honors and awards, she has held the college's Edgar F. and Ethel Johnson Chair in Fine Arts and received funding from the Minnesota Dance Alliance. As you will hear, she exudes learning for life, and it's my great pleasure to have her on the podcast. Welcome, Michelle. Hello, Greg. So happy to be here. Thanks. We go way back, right? Yeah. I mean, you came in 88. Uh, I came in 86. And I should maybe note that uh, our spouses, your case, Bob, my case, Kate, we also worked at Gustavus, Kate in the history department, Bob in advancement. So the four of us have known us for a long time. Uh, and it's great to have you uh, in, this, in this venue. So how are things going? First of all, how do you, how, how do you teach dance in a, in a pandemic? Are you teaching online or hybrid? What are you doing? Um, in the beginning, uh, well, we started out all online. And then we, when the college was giving us the option to meet in person, um, I met in a hybrid form. Uh, my mm-hmm. modern one class, which had 22 people in it. We were fortunate to have the brand new large Gardner Laboratory Theater. And so over the summer, the technical director taped out 10 foot squares on the floor. And um, the first day of class, as half of the class came in, half would meet on Monday, half would meet on Wednesday. I said, pick your spot. It's where you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And if we have to do contact tracing, you want to know who's in the squares around you. So uh, we t- I taught in person, everybody one day a week. And then I recorded combinations and things to be working on when they were not in class. We worked with 
what I would call axial movement a lot, where you're standing in one place. And we didn't have the opportunity to go flying across the floor. Um, (laughs) And we couldn't do any partner work, of course. But one thing that was challenging and interesting is I think everybody who teaches dance, everybody who takes a dance class feels like, yes, I get a little more muscle mass and I get stronger, but often they notice a real improvement in their emotional well-being. And Mm. so when Gustavus moved to the new curriculum that included a well-being requirement, we said, we're going to go for this. So uh, most of our dance classes also include a well-being requirement, which that was particularly interesting this fall because it, it gave me a structure to really integrate the well-being and resiliency work into the movement work, just just articulate it and really make it evident to the students and encourage them to do some reflecting on how they were experiencing it. So um, I would rather teach in person. Sure. But, uh, we're a creative lot and the students are creative and we have managed it. And I think I've seen some really wonderful growth and uh, development with the students in really challenging times. Yeah. You know, you're, it's funny. You, I, I couldn't agree more about, about our students. And I think I, from what I read, most students across the country, I mean, there's all this press about, you know, professors being anxious and students being anxious, but Honestly, both last spring and, and this fall too, um, I would say most of the students are st- stepping up. I mean, they're they're they've made the adjustment. They're working. They're getting something out of our courses, whether online, hybrid, in person. Um, so I'm a little, you know, I resist that what seems to be the dominant narrative about all this anxiety. I mean, sure, there, there's anxious, there's anxiety, mm-hmm. but there's also a lot of learning and creativity in it. In a, well, you were there during the tornado in 98. You know what, what that was like. Um, you know, I want to come back later to this business about emotion and dance, um, as you will see. And I know I know that uh, is important to you in all kinds of ways. And I find it very interesting. Um, before we do, before we get there, let's, let's uh, go back in time, right? The historian here. So if I'm remembering correctly, you grew up in, did you grow up in Minneapolis? Is that right? Yes, South Minneapolis. Yeah, South okay. Minneapolis. Oh, where at? Where at in South Minneapolis? Uh, 60th what, what? and Morgan. Oh, okay. You know it well, yeah. Yeah. Um, because Kate, Kate, you know, Kate and I are downtown yeah. now, downtown Minneapolis. But let's talk a little bit. So you went to you went to the Arch Enemy uh, Institution, <laughs> St. <laughs> Olaf, the Norwegians. Mm-hmm. What? Um, and I'm kidding. It's a it's a fabulous school and another great liberal arts college in this state. What what um what drew you there? Why not the U, for example? Well, I'll be honest, and I'll I'll wind back the story even further. Um, when I was about four or five, my next door neighbor, Sandy, took tap ballet and acrobats. And so I begged my parents to do that. And I took a class and I found home. I found like my calling in life. It's hard to imagine that a, a child that small um, just really landed in a way that was so profound. And I think in all truth, you know, that time period would have been the very end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s. Had it been 20 years later, 
I would have probably received a diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity yeah. disorder because I was the one who was doing cartwheels in the living room. <laughs> um, but when I was in the studio and nobody told me to sit still and I was rewarded for being physically active. Yeah. Um, it just was like home. I just knew I was home. And I really held on to that. And uh, as I was in high school, I had no intention of going to college, which broke my oh, really? heart. But huh. I just wanted to dance. And specifically, I wanted to be in ballet. And during my high school years, I was really pursuing that. Now, I graduated in 73. So, Greg, you know, as a historian, what that time period was. Yeah. My junior high and high school years, we'd sit in front of the TV as the draft numbers came up for Vietnam. I, I remember the Lieutenant Cali trials and the My Lai mm -hmm. Massacre coming to light. I remember the invasion of Cambodia. I remember all this. And I was very, I was like the poster child of liberal arts even then. And I just was taking it all in. And I remember going to my ballet class and I went into the dressing room and I started talking. And this was around uh, when all everything going on in Cambodia came to light. And, and I was telling the other people in, that were changing clothes, getting ready for class, you know, have you been listening to the radio today? And they were not particularly interested. <laughs> and I went into the studio and I remember just taking that whole ballet bar and, and thinking, and as trite as it sounds, I can't be the sugar plum fairy the rest of my life. This is just, I'm not ready to be done learning. I'm not ready to be done with school. And this was getting into spring of my senior year in high school. Um, so truth be told, I applied to the two schools I, I was familiar with. I applied to Carleton and I applied to St. Olaf. St. Olaf, yeah. And my mother had gone to St. Olaf for one year uh, and decided it wasn't a good fit for her and went into nurses training elsewhere. I had gone to a gymnastics camp once at Carleton um, and I applied to those two schools. I was accepted at those two schools. I went and visited. Carleton completely intimidated me. Um, St. Olaf felt comfortable and I decided to go there. So it wasn't a well-researched decision, <laughs> but it's, it, it's how I landed there. And I majored in biology education and minored in chemistry. Oh, I love it. Oh my gosh. I was hoping you wouldn't say dance because <laughs> I didn't know what you majored. That is awesome. No, they it's didn't very, have a dance major there. Well, I, they, I, they I wondered a, about that too. Yeah. Yeah. They had a, they had a little bit of a dance program and there was a wonderful dance teacher over at Carleton, two of them in fact. And I used to take the little shuttle over and take class over there. But then I'd, I'd come back and I was a science major danced on the side and I graduated from St. Olaf and I um, 
I applied for just a handful of high school science jobs. And I was, again, pretty offered pretty much what I applied for. And most cases, I would have been the first female science teacher at that school. Sure. I um, took the job at Apple Valley High School, where there was a female chemistry teacher already. So I had a colleague and I, I taught high school science for four years before I went back to dance. You know, I don't think I knew that. That's amazing. I don't think I knew that. And then you went, did you go from there to uh, Arizona State? Yes. And and I discovered a number of things teaching at Apple Valley High School. I discovered I really love teaching. There was no question. Mm-hmm. Um, I started thinking I would rather teach at the college level. and And I noticed while I had a world of appreciation for science. If I was doing, let's say, reading for pleasure, I was reading about dance. Um, I knew that that my heart was still there. And actually, my third year teaching, I made the decision to go back to graduate school. Um, But it took another year to line those ducks up and put everything in place. And then I packed my life into my little Honda Accord and drove from Minnesota to Arizona and did my MFA in dance. What was it? Was was uh, Arizona State known for a particularly fine dance program? What, what drew you there? Um, yes, they had a very good dance program. I, and a couple of parts to that. Again, I kind of narrowed down my choices. I know some people apply places widely, I did my research. I narrowed it down to Arizona State or Ohio State. And of course, this was when people didn't easily use the internet. So you had to fly out an audition and interview. And that was what about my budget held to schools. <laughs> um, and Ohio State had a great program. But they were absolutely adamant that there was no financial aid for first-year graduate students. And then I went to Arizona, and they had a wonderful program. And uh, I remember just because I was kind of swept away of the desert in the winter, uh, thinking, wow, all things being equal, Columbus, Ohio, Tempe, (laughs) Arizona. Um, (laughs) And then I got a Regents Fellowship, which paid my tuition all three years. Oh, yeah, so, that helps. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's exactly why I went to Boston University. I got, I got, I got a fellowship. I was, okay, done. I'm done. there. Yeah. <laughs> so I was happy it worked out in terms of the weather. And it was a wonderful yeah. fit for me. It was an absolutely wonderful fit. I thrived at Arizona. One of the things I love about Speaking with my colleagues uh, and, 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 and alums, too, I love these origins, these sort of career academic, career, whatever you want to call it, origin stories. Mm-hmm. Because so often, um, so often there are these twists and turns, right? There isn't a straight line. For example, when I was interviewing our chaplain, Siri, for this podcast, um, she was a chemistry major. Yeah. <laughs> which I didn't know. And I, I don't, I, I may have known you, you were about your science background, but I, I don't think I knew about it and your teaching. So that's just awesome. And also I saw, by the way, you're, you're, you're a first, you called yourself a first generation college student. Is that true? Somewhere yeah. I saw that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I own that from the standpoint, my mother did go to St. Olaf for a year. Right. Uh, I remember her saying, oh, 
All the girls there had beautiful clothes and played musical instruments. What did I have in common with them? Um, she grew up on a farm and uh, was clearly, clearly first generation, tried. but So she only went a year. My father tried, uh, went to school a little bit as he could afford, but uh, finances and World War II and other things stepped in. Uh, so neither of them finished college. They both went to a year. Maybe my dad went a year and a half. So... I remember at St. Olaf, my first year, and it's very similar. We see this at Gustavus all the time. And people would start talking, and you would start to hear the lineage conversations. The ones, right. oh, my parents yeah. went to St. Olaf, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. Right. Or the conversations were like, well, my grandfather was a judge, or my grandfather was provost at this school. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Uh, one grandfather was a dairy farmer, bless him. The other was an immigrant from Eastern Europe who worked in the coal mines. Um, and, you know, I just remember I was feeling like I, I have landed on Mars. I don't yeah, know. No, there, there, are, there are lessons about class. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I mean, I, I have similar background as you know, my, my dad, uh, grew up in a, his parents came from Greece, grew up in Chicago, became a hairdresser. His dad had been a barber, didn't go to college. Um, my mother went to a two year, she grew up on a farm, uh, and then went to a two year teacher college, tried teaching for time, I think even in a one room schoolhouse and hated it. And, and that was it. So I think in my, yeah, in my immediate family, at least I was the first one to, to go as far as four years and certainly to go on for the, advanced degrees, your case too. So I, yeah, I can relate to what you're saying. And I remember feeling, I didn't feel that so much at Northern Illinois University because it was, there were so many people like me at that public institution outside of Chicago, but I definitely felt it when I got to Boston and Boston mm -hmm. University. Wow. Yeah. And um, I also find interesting, I just love these stories. I mean, I love how, okay, movement in your case, right, as a little kid is, mm -hmm. it's a problem yeah. <laughs> until you find the right context. And then, you know, it's, highly functional. It's satisfying. It's great. Love that story. Um, so you're at, uh, you, you come out with the MFA and is, is at that point, is, is there a particular kind of dancing you are doing and you really enjoy? It's not, it sounds like it's not ballet. Is it modern dance? Yeah, I quite in my senior year at St. Olaf, I took a master class from a visiting artist at Carleton. His name was Bill Evans. And it was a, a modern technique class, and I fell in love with it. I wasn't good at it, but I fell in love with it. And the summer after I graduated from college, before I was going to start teaching high school in the fall, I went out to Seattle and I studied with him and his company. And that was the beginning of a real turning point. I realized I love the ritual of ballet. I love the strength of it. It was never my expressive vocabulary. There mm. were a different vocabulary, um, a different way of moving that felt like my honest movement voice. And that was modern. So I, I crossed over into modern. Um, and at the time I, I got out of graduate school, 84, um, the market was still difficult for MFAs, but 
but there were jobs if you were willing to go where they were. And you often, um, you often were, as I was when I came to Gustavus four years later, I was first at a school in Utah called Weber State. You were often the only dance faculty and you taught everything. You taught ballet, you taught modern, you taught history, choreography. You might teach, um, I taught a class called rhythmic movement for the elementary school or something for <laughs> teachers. Um, you, you were, you were a one person department often, uh, but there were jobs out there. And I first went to Weber for four years and the program grew during my time there. We were basically a- ran the program, I think, yeah. right? You yeah. created it. Yeah. And, and, uh, it was a two person department when I left, um, and hmm. as things circle around, you mentioned, you know, you know, my husband, Bob, I met him in Utah and we got married out there, um, had a relatively small wedding, but came back to Minnesota to have a reception with my big extended family. And at that reception was, um, Ann Wagner, who was my dance prof at St. Olaf, who I'd stayed in touch with. And as she went through the receiving line, she said to me, there's a dance job at Gustavus. Do you have any interest? (laughs) I thought, I don't know. Send me a job description. And I remember we were flying back to Salt Lake City and my mountain loving husband said to me, I think Minnesota is really interesting. I think I could live there. And I'm like, (laughs) seriously, there's a job at Gustavus. And so he said, oh, apply, see what happens. So, uh, you know, I applied and I got the job here and we moved from Salt Lake City to St. Peter. That is so, and again, you know, that's what, what in history we call contingency. There are so many contingencies mm-hmm. in one's life and path, whether we know it or not. But yeah. so what if she hadn't been there, your mm. former teacher? I mean, you might not have known about the mm. job. The other thing is, did you were you aware? I mean, maybe maybe I maybe I should back up. What were were the Twin Cities as much of a dance mecca then as they are now? And were you, were you if so, were you aware of that? Oh, probably even more so. I mean, hmm. I think what sustained me during my four years as a high school teacher, I was very involved with the Minneapolis dance community. It, it was. It was heady times. There was an organization called MICA, the Minnesota Independent Choreographer Alliance. And the funding was great from Dayton Hudson and the McKnight early days, funding individual artists, individual choreographers. So I was very involved and and nourished by that. So I, as I said, I kind of discovered modern as I was graduating from college, but I really had the opportunity to grow as an artist during those four years I was teaching high school. Yeah, I can see why that would have been important and, and sustaining. I've just grown since, since uh, well, partly through you, partly through another friend who was a dancer and uh, works with a dance company up here. I guess she, oh, she teaches gyrotonics. But mm-hmm. in any case, I've just become more aware in the last, maybe last 
10 years or so about the incredible talent, including some Gustavus students, oh, yeah. alums who are in, in these uh, dance companies in the Twin Cities, just fabulous. Mm -hmm. So, you know, modern dance, is it possible to define it? You, you know, you mentioned that, it ha I mean, it has its own vocabulary, different from ballet, its own movements. What, what, what is modern dance? Oh, that could be about a three-hour podcast in and of itself, but we'll, of we'll take the shorter version. You know, as much as a lot of people look at the emergence of modern dance at the turn of the 20th century, 1900s, um, as if it was all reactionary against ballet, there was a little piece there, but it was more dancers who felt they wanted dance to be taken seriously as an art form the way other forms like visual art and music how music or visual art could really dive into subject matters of substance and have something to say about those um, ballet has gone through its ups and downs um, I actually love teaching ballet history. It, it went through times when it was political propaganda. It went through times when um, it was just about romantic storytelling. Uh, it had a consistency. It had a set vocabulary that gave it a global um, convenience, I'll say. You could have a dancer from Italy go to England, and even if their English wasn't great, they knew the vocabulary of dance. Uh, it was always taught in French. So there was a global nature to it. But it, it had highs and lows, and um, it got to be kind of a museum piece. It didn't, for a long time, it didn't seem to speak towards current events or what was alive in other artistic communities, be it visual arts or music. That is all extremely interesting to me, um, new to me, and also um, it relates to the quote I started with, which mm -hmm. we can come back to uh, about, because what you're talking about is how dance can, dance isn't, dance does not have to be divorced from what's happening in the world, <laughs> right? From whether, whether it's around, I mean, I've seen dances related to issues of race, for example, for sure. Um, gender. Uh, and you know, that, I, I think when I first was, well, I actually, for a dear friend of Kate's, my wife, Kate's, who was a dancer in New York city for a time. Do you ever meet Betsy? I don't know if you met our friend Betsy ever, but anyway, Betsy, um, modern dance to me before I started seeing her do it and listening to her talk about it was just people sort of making random movements, <laughs> which of course is not the case, right? I mean, it was a very naive understanding of it. And whereas ballet to me was something very, you know, formal and, 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 and studied in, in, in all senses of that word. But you also, so you, you, you well, danced thing, modern. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Just, yeah. Just kind of interrupt or do a yeah. segue in there. When I teach dance history and I teach just a, I was, the class is called studies in dance history because it's such a huge field that it, I just try to give a little slice of it. And one of the first things I really work on is dispelling the myth that dance is a universal art. 
um, yeah, there's a shared vocabulary in, in, in ballet. But as I say to the students, dances are created in a specific time, in a specific culture, and they are always reflective of that. And something we might look at the Grand Pas de Deux from Swan Lake and say, isn't that beautiful? Whereas somebody who had been raised in the Taliban would look at it and say, isn't that pornographic? Um, You know, it's not a universal, everybody sees it the same way. Dance really grows out of the time and the culture it exists in. And so it's, it's very interesting and hard to see when you're in the middle of it. You know, it's easier to look back and see what was going on there. Um, But when you're right in the middle of it, it's a little hard to see. Yeah, well, you just made my day because what you're talking about is dear to any historian's heart, and that's historical context. Absolutely. And it's the same. I mean, if you think of dance as a text, it's like any any text. We have to understand it in its historical context, even if it seems to speak to timeless, you know, what I mean, no, it's 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 grounded in a particular moment in time, particular culture, place, et cetera. Yeah. That makes that makes a great deal of sense to me. So, did you were you were you choreographing? You were already choreographing at, at Weber State, right? Mm-hmm. I assume. Yeah, I you know I I was choreographing at Saint Olaf as an undergraduate. I okay. I I would get an idea. This is still true today. It's like I get something kind of stuck in my craw, and. To understand it, I need to make a dance about it. And I started that as an undergraduate with very little training. And then in graduate school, I really, I really dug down deep there. Um, uh, that, I don't, I don't even know, I can't have words for it. I, I discovered more about who I am and what what is satisfying as work um, during those years. Uh, There is something absolutely lovely about performing and um, getting that immediate feedback, but birthing a dance is like writing a book or an article. I mean, it's a deep dive into something, investigating it, lots of trial and error lots of craft in putting it together and then putting it out there for other people to interact with. Yeah. I have in my list of questions for you, akin to writing question mark choreographing. And you just answered that. Yeah. I I thought so. I, and I want, actually, I wanted to talk to you a little more about that or hear more about it. First of all, I just find it so interesting, you know, the work people do and what, what's involved. So, um, Gosh, I wish you could dance for us right mm-hmm. now, or we could see a video. But that's we're uh, we're kind of on radio here, audio only. But I wonder if you could um, just say more about the process you you go through. So you, you start with an idea, and then you need to turn it into a dance. And maybe even if you could speak about a particular uh, dance you've choreographed. I mean, you know what? So yeah. what kind of idea? What's what's the process? Well. You know, people approach dance in different ways. There are choreographers who start just kind of with their bodies doodling in the studio. And as shapes and phrases occur, it starts to make sense where they're going. I am 
really a conceptual choreographer. And, and I, I'll give just two examples. One that maybe a number of people have seen, um, who are familiar with Gus Davis's tradition of Christmas in Christ Chapel. Um, so a year ago, as we were, uh, working on Christmas in Christ Chapel. Um, one of the things that makes Christmas in Christ Chapel so unique is that it's not just a music program. It again starts with a concept and it tries to look at the nativity story through that lens, through what's going on there. Well, a year ago in the fall, we were in the throes of the immigration crisis. We were in the throes of kids being separated um, from their families. And so we started kind of wrestling around with that. And I started thinking about that, being aware that when people come to see Christmas in Christ Chapel, they want to be uplifted. They want to think about the Christmas story. Um, but we can't divorce ourselves from what's going on. And, and I remember, and, and it's so, it's so fun to be part of that production team because we all just bat ideas around. And I said, as I often do, I I get an image that starts percolating in my mind. And I said, wow, we have just, immigration is just part of history. I mean, if we want to look back at the time of, Mary and Joseph going to register and and people of that time traveling from one place to another being displaced. And I said, as I'm thinking, you know, I think about the displaced people, World War II, I just get this image of the Jewish refugees who got out just in time and were not exactly welcomed with open arms in the new world. And then I said, and I'm in my lifetime, I'm so aware of the impact of the Vietnam war and the influx of Hmong refugees. And then the last years when we saw the war in Somalia And then now what we're dealing with Central America, I said, these images are so strong. I said, what if at the beginning we just saw small groups of people traverse from one side of the chancel to the other side, and it just kind of kept going, little groupings of people crossing the front of the chancel. But you saw by how they dressed and how they looked that they represented different times, different. Yeah, that's cultures. great. Love that. And I, so I just had this idea, and and then probably three days later, Professor Ruth Lynn sent me a, a file, and she said, "I've been thinking about your idea. How would this music work?" And I listened to it, and I'm like, "Yes, that's it." And and then I have to tell one more story about that because it was so amazing. So I. I always recruit student collaborators and I, two of the students I recruited, one was a young man who was Hmong and one was a young woman who was an immigrant from Africa. So I said, I need you to be my truth tellers. I need, here's what I want to explore, but I don't want to, um, I don't know. I don't want to make it, 
showy or cheap. I don't want to appropriate cultures. I just, I don't know how to go forward on this idea without your help. And we recruited the other dancers and, and uh, Nathan, the young man, uh, one day we were in the studio working and he grabbed all these yoga belts and he tied them into knots and then he tied the five dancers together and they started moving. And I, and I'm like, what are you doing? And he said, well, this is the story my grandparents told me that when they left Vietnam, they tied the kids to them because they had to quietly go through the jungle and they didn't want to lose someone, but they didn't want to be found. And I mean, wow. I just got shivers and, yeah. and that became part of one of the most amazing little moments that that piece of his history, his story ended up in just that crossing, you know, five people lashed together, moving from one side of the chancel to the other side. So yeah. it's, it starts with an idea. And then sometimes I get a little, some visual image to hold on right. to. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, yeah, it's the idea. Yeah. What now do you, I mean, I don't know how you work as a choreographer in this regard or any, but do choreographers, so do you, do you write this down? I mean, how do you, I've always wondered when I'm watching a dance, like how in the hell do the dancers remember all of these moves? And I mean, is it like a script that's sort of memorized or? No, well, two parts to that. It is, it is body to body motor memory. Um, there are people who are magnificent at remembering movement sequences. I was when I was younger. Now I am 100% dependent on videotape. So when uh, I'm working on something, when we get something I like, at this point, I literally just whip out my cell phone and record it so that I can look at it and make sure we don't lose it. And now now it's a practice. I, I think about how my rehearsal practice has changed. Now when I'm working on a dance, one of the first things I do is I set up a Google Drive and then ideas, images, pictures, lists of words, and then eventually little clips of tapes all get stored in that file for memory and for refinement. Yeah, that's cool too. I never, I hadn't thought about the impact of uh, let's see the impact of the iPhone. <laughs> no, that makes sense to me. Thank you. I've, I've always wondered, um, because it's amazing to watch. Uh, it's so complicated and yet, so it's not just, uh, it's not stream of consciousness dancing, right? It doesn't seem to be at least when I, I mean, choreograph choreography is, you know, you, there are certain things you have to do. You follow, I guess. Right. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. or is there a lot of improv? I well, mean, you know, the, it depends on the choreographer. There's choreographers who have a lot of improv moments within performances. I use a lot of improvisation to generate movement, but my final product is set. And so what I, you know, to wind it back, um, sometimes, sometimes there's a bypass of the verbal and, and, you're playing with some movement and whether it's me and I, I might say something like, I feel like you have to burst out and run right there. Or where does it feel like it needs to go? Does it need to go down to the ground? Do you need to come together? I mean, where do you feel like intuitively, where does it feel like it needs to go? 
And sometimes things will literally feel right or feel wrong. And in the moment, I can't tell you why that is, but it's kind of like going back and doing revisions on a paper or something. Um, Sometimes the logic of it, sometimes something is so obvious down the road, but in the moment I have learned to trust when something feels right and analyze later if huh. it's a good choice. Yeah, you know, you're you're literally anticipating one of my what was gonna be my next question, which is and maybe this is also a three hour podcast, <laughs> but so I mean there are dance critics and you've written commentary. Uh-huh. I don't know if it's dance criticism, but you know, what, what are the, what, what makes for a successful dance in your mind? I mean, and, and stipulating there probably isn't one, there's not one kind of successful dance, but what, what, what are the ingredients of a dance that is successful? I mean, is, is it that it, it's moving the, it's moved the audience to think or. Well, I would say, audience, it, yeah, I would say there's a lot of things that can be, um, Sometimes that that sheer quirky joy of creativity, like, you know, when you see something, you go, I wish I would have thought of that. I mean, sometimes it's just like somebody thought of something and it's just wonderful spark and creative and new. Sometimes it is intellectually puzzling and you're just it can be just satisfying on an intellectual level. Hmm. And other times, and, and this is where my my old biology teacher comes back into the play. Um, <laughs> I love the understanding of mirror neurons. And you know how, for example, this is kind of a, a violent example, but if somebody was to punch you in the stomach and you feel the pain, certain parts of your brain would light up. Right. You're watching a movie and you see somebody get punched in the stomach, you probably even contract in your stomach, and those parts of your brain light up just as if you had gotten punched. That's how mirror neurons work. And sometimes when you're watching a dance, and like a, a dancer can can go flying in a leap, those mirror neurons in the audience, they light up and they go flying in that leap too. And and there can be something just kinesthetically, like you're just watching and you think, oh my gosh, that just would feel good to do. And then the fourth place, I'll relate it right back to story. Do you know how somebody can tell a very, very specific story? Yes. It ends up having a much more universal impact. Somebody can wow. tell the story of losing a beloved friend. And and you might think, I've never lost a friend in that way, but I have felt loss. And that that story captured loss and it made me feel it. I think dances can be like that too. There can be something really specific in it, but somehow it communicates something more universal I, yeah, I mean, no, go ahead. I was just, I'm just going to tell you a quick story, if I could, of, of a dance I created years ago. And I've told this story before. Um, you know, we're an educational institution, 
we like to give everybody opportunities who who's in the dance company. And we were kind of figuring out casting. And there were four really lovely dancers, very different from each other, who weren't used. And, and I thought, no, they have to be in something. I'll make a dance for them. <laughs> so this was pre 9-11. And I was going to a conference and my parents still lived in South Minneapolis. And sometimes I'd leave my car there and my dad would drive me to the airport and he could, you know, back in that day, they could come all the way to the gate with you. And my dad, who was an old air force pilot said, wow, that plane's taken off like a homesick angel. And I thought that is the most interesting phrase. Where does that come from? And he said, back when he was in the army air force, Sometimes they needed to like make a really steep ascent and they just had to, that was the expression they'd use, you know, to get off that runway, you've got to take off like a homesick angel. That's great. And I just love that phrase. And I said to the dancers, I have no idea what, what we're doing, but I have this idea about homesick angels. And the first section is going to be low to the ground. The next section is going to be kind of mid-level. And the third section, we're going to be flying. <laughs> so we started working the first section started to become something nice. The second section was going well. The third section was garbage. No matter what I tried, it was terrible. And one day before I went into rehearsal, I had this thought and I said, there's a fourth section to this dance and it's called grace. And, and I don't really understand it, but there's a fourth section. So we started working on it. It started turning into something really beautiful. And then it was like a light switch went off. And I said to the dancers, I just figured out this dance. Sometimes you really, really want something and you don't get it. These angels didn't get to go home. But sometimes grace is discovering it all worked out for the best. And they all started talking about when that had happened in their lives. And we performed this piece. It was very beautiful. And after the performance, people would come up on me and they, they would get really teary. And they'd say, I, I really liked your dance, but there was something really sad about it. But it was beautiful. But I like, and they couldn't find the words. And it was very abstract. But there was something there that people understood right. about that idea. And I don't know how it all got captured, but it did. Yeah. And that's, I mean, the, the work of creating that, as you just told us about it, is, is an example of grace, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, were, you didn't know where it was going to go. You yeah. were a disaster. And then, boom. And that's, boy, that is so much about learning. Right. I mean, it's not like you, it's not like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, map this all out and we've got it all. No, it's, it's, there's, it's like writing again, you're revising, you're yeah. thinking, right. You're changing new ideas come up. Same in, same in when you're researching history. So often what you start out to research isn't what you wind up writing about because right. you've come across new or thought, new ideas come across new evidence. I love that kind of stuff. That's creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other thing I want to talk about which I know relates to dance, at least I think it relates to dances, is the whole business of um, your work on positive psychology and resilience, mm-hmm. which I think is that that's more recent. Is that, is that accurate? Like the last five years or yeah. so? Or? Yeah, it, probably the last six going on now. Okay. 
And, okay. and again, I'll, I'll give you a little short overview of this. Um, as you know, in, in 2013, I was diagnosed with um, invasive lobular breast cancer. Right. And I, I will attribute in part discovering that very early because I listened to my body. Being a dancer, I notice um, I couldn't with my fingers feel anything, but I would, I noticed something was off. That's a longer story. But a friend of mine had suggested, she said, if you get the chance, go out to Kripalu Yoga and Wellness Center in the Berkshire Mountains and take this class called Radiance, Building an Amazing Life After Cancer. And I was like, okay, I can do that. <laughs> and, and, and I did. And Berkshire's, yeah, beautiful, why not? <laughs> and, and, and as I've said on more than one occasion, it totally rocked my world. It, it gave me a framework to be thinking about things. Um, one thing was um, where the, like the positive and positive psychology is, is the science of what works, the science what enables us to thrive. And there's a huge amount of research there. And people will often say, oh, isn't it just thinking happy thoughts? I'm like, mm, no, not so much. Um, <laughs> I t you take something like, um, you know, again, we're living in this pandemic. We're living in this right. coronavirus. And yeah, there are, there are horrible things going on. The suffering is real. The people who are dying is real. But it is not 100% of the whole picture. In that whole picture, there are also those amazingly creative students who are figuring out how to do it. The amazing right. people who are, you know, dropping off the meals on their neighbor's front porch because their elderly neighbor can't get out to grocery shop as regularly. There are these beautiful little moments. And positive psychology doesn't say, ignore the bad, put your blinders on. It says, yeah, see the bad, but also see the good, savor those good pieces. And what's the research around savoring the good? And this is such an interesting wrap because Barbara Fredrickson is the primary researcher on positive emotions. I think she's at Greensboro. She's in North Carolina. Okay. When she first started wanting to research positive emotions, people said, you will never be taken seriously as an academic. Don't go there. But she was <laughs> fascinated. And what she discovered and what she is known for is what's called the broaden and build theory. When you are experiencing a positive emotion, when you're feeling grateful, when you're feeling um, joyful, when you're feeling satisfied after a good meal, I mean, when you experience a positive emotion, you actually visually have a bigger field of vision. You see more around the edges. Hmm. And in your mind, you have more problem-solving capability. You have more creativity because you see more options. It's this broaden and build. 
That is fascinating. It is. And when you are in the throes and you know this, like when you're in the peak of frustration, when you're really angry or very, literally the field in front of you narrows and your creativity and your problem solving just narrows. And so, you know, to bring it back, I think I am somebody who always savored the good. I think it's a piece of my creativity from the start. It's been so interesting to have the scientist, the biology, chemistry major, yeah. high school teacher, come back and look at what's the research yes. about this and how does this all play into who I am in the face of all this? Yes, I, I, I've been thinking even earlier in our conversation, I love the way um, – Oh, it was when you were talking about the mirror neurons, right? Mm -hmm. The way science still is there for you in, in all kinds of useful ways. You know, I think I may have heard her, the woman you're the researcher, yeah. I may have heard her on public radio because mm -hmm. this is all ringing a, a, a bell. The other thing that I'm thinking, listening to you talk about that is, um, as I've said about the study of history, you can, you can study history and become very <laughs> disillusioned and depressed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or you can study it and be, you know, sort of Pollyannish. Um, I, and for me, it's both, right? It's right. a source of it's a source of realism uh, and, you know, I wouldn't say pessimism, but any let's say realism. Mm -hmm. But but also hope. Yes. A source of hope at the same time, right? It's not an either or. And I think, I don't know why, I mean, over the, over, I don't know what it is, but over, over, I think actually it's the influence of, some of it is definitely the influence of this uh, dancer friend of ours here in the Twin Cities, Wendy uh, Anderson, who, anyway, um, this, this, and, and, and also knowing your own work too, just the, the, the ways in which the mind body, right, are so mm -hmm. intertwined in ways I never, I never really appreciated mm -hmm. before. And I'm assuming that the wider your field of vision, the more resilient, or is that, is that yeah. too fast? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Because the, I, I'm also quite interested in, um, Resilience, right? Mm -hmm. What is it that makes some people more resilient, others less resilient? But we, you know, we're reading a lot and hearing about resilience right now amid the amid the pandemic. And even, you know, how resilient is the republic? How resilient are our institutions? Uh, as we have one president refusing to concede to exactly. a president-elect, for example. The other thing I wanted to touch on uh, is just your 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 sense of where we're at in the arts generally. <laughs> I mean, I, I, boy, this is when I, I, maybe I, I need to be, I need to practice more positive psychology. I think we need the arts more than ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, at this time. Um, and yet I fear, I fear for the arts. I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the budget cuts, et cetera, et cetera. Are you, are you optimistic about the future of the arts uh, yes, I, I am. I, I am not unrealistic. I am. I know we've got a long, hard patch ahead. The recovery here is going to take some real time. Right. Um, some organizations, theaters, companies will not survive. New ones will emerge. 
Um, so if I take the long view, I completely trust that the arts will thrive again. Uh, but I also know it, it's, it's going to be a long haul. There's going to be some time here. Oh, yeah, sometimes I, I can just get metaphorical. I think uh, right now there's this one poem that talks about what to do in darkness. And, and one of the lines is to see it as a time of germination. And I think we're at a time where all we can do is grow roots and grow those little, you know, runners that come out from the roots and connect to another root system. So we just get this really strong root system. And then when the time is right, things will flourish, things will bloom again. Not that appeals to the gardener in me. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I just think, yeah, and I, you know, I think um, one thing that gives me hope, I mean, this isn't the same as having the resources, of course, but just the creativity, no surprise, of the artistic community, whether it's museums, small, large orchestras, you know, how they're still trying to do do their art amid all of the challenges associated with the, with the pandemic. Um, but man, I mean, without art... Good Lord. I mean, how are we, how are we a democracy? How are we human? I just, I just can't, you know, I can't, I just, this is when I wish I had the authority to say here, museums and restaurants here, here's a lot of money to help you through this. We do need money. We need people to step up. Um, we're lucky to be, I think we're lucky. I feel lucky to be in Minnesota where the arts are so, uh, so strongly valued, but you're right. It's the long, it's the long perspective that we need, we need to have. What about teaching? What is it about teaching dance that you really, really love? Because you are, you are a phenomenal teacher. And you said, you said yourself earlier how much you realized, I think it was when you were at Weber State, you, you really want to teach. You'd already done the high school mm -hmm. teaching. What is, what is it about teaching dance that you enjoy so much? Well, I, I think I always, I always talk in stories, but I think what I love is sharing the exploration of an idea and letting it take hold in, in students and seeing where they go with it. And I, again, I go back to a kind of Margaret Dobler who started the dance program at university of Wisconsin. It was the first dance major in the country. And hmm. she said, I don't teach dance. I teach students. And I, I always think about that. I mean, whether I'm teaching dance or story in my FTS or the resilience work, you know, I'm exploring an idea. And, and when I think about it with dance, like one of the things I, I often will, will say to students is to have mobility you have to know where your stability is. So to have a flag that just whips wildly in the breeze, you have to have a strong flagpole. You know, if the flagpole was a noodle, <laughs> the, the flag couldn't whip around. So when I'm, I'm teaching things in movement class, I'm like, where's your stability? Find your leg. Find the ground there. Drop down in. You've got to know where your stability is to free up the part that's moving or to move through space. Um, 
And, and I remember like almost in the earlier days of, of email. And I got an email from a student one time who had graduated like five or six years uh, ago. And she said to me, she said, I've, I've really been floundering for a bit. I've been having trouble moving forward. And she said, and I started thinking and hearing your voice saying, you have to know where your stability is to know where your mobility is. And she said, that's it. I had to find my stability. What was stable in my life? Who were the people who supported me? How did I have an income? And she said, I had to find my stability to be able to move forward. And I'm like, yeah, she got it. You know, that's that's good advice for the nation. That's good yeah. advice for the United States right now. Let's let's find our stability and then move forward. I mean, seriously, there's some there's, there's a lot to be said for that, even as applied to the to the to a country to a nation. Um, you know, you're 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 you mentioned the alum, and that's actually kind of where I wanted to end to talk a little bit about. Um, the the dance made why you know what's your elevator pitch for the dance program the dance major and your response to people who say I'm sure you must hear this uh, we hear it all the time in history you know what can you do with you know fill in the blank dance mm-hmm. or, or or history well I think there's a lot of reasons to dance I mean. I here's kind of an interesting little tidbit. When I look back on the Gustavus Dance Company and I look at the the most common career of former dance company members, the most common career is attorney. Huh, that's great. And I, I think about that. I think about what it takes to stand your ground, what it takes to listen deeply. And what it takes to to improvise when you need to. And, um, you know, there's all these transferable skills. Dancers make wonderful healthcare workers and they make wonderful lawyers. And there are those people who that's. I often will say to a dance, somebody who wants to go into dance as a career, I'm like, is there anything else you could do and be happy? <laughs> and like, mm, no. And I'm like, okay. Cause it's a hard road. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a rich, I, I am so grateful that when I was five, my parents said yes. When I wanted to take tap ballet and acrobats, um, I am so grateful. I stepped in the door way back then. Uh, when I look back, dance has been a rich and wonderful life for me. And it, and I'm a liberal arts girl. Gustavus was a good yes. friend for me. Um, I remember uh, <laughs> this is. I remember when I was in went to graduate school, and most of the people there had BFAs. They had some had come from places like Juilliard. They had these. They were incredible dancers. But I remember thinking, but they don't know who Kierkegaard is. <laughs> How do they think? Um, and so I'm, I'm such a liberal arts girl. And that has been the richest source of my artistry. Yeah, you are. I, I strongly agree. And that's what I meant earlier when I said you just exude learning for life. So I love talking to you. Um, you your interests are, are so varied. Um, and you you think deeply about issues. You're curious. Um, 
you know, it's 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 all good. It's all that's what the liberal arts are all about. So, uh, listeners, especially prospective students, come to Gustavus, where you can dance your heart out and learn a great deal at the same time. Michelle, been great. Stay well. Keep moving, I guess we could say. Um, oh, I wish I could find a video of me. I don't know if there is one. When I heard you about to say when I was tap dancing as a little kid in some big, some big high school auditorium. I took tap dance, and I remember having to do the quote unquote Mexican hat. Is there such a thing in the Mexican oh, yeah. hat dance? Oh God, we were in sombreros. And I, oh my good lord! Which I hope there isn't a video. Anyway, this has been so much fun and so interesting. Thank you. Take good care. Thank you. Good to talk to you. See you back on campus. Likewise. Bye-bye. Bye.